1: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. We're also joined down the line from Oslo by Richard Milne, our Scandinavia correspondent. And our guest this week is Stephen Jones, the chief executive of UK Finance. This week, we'll be discussing Brexit and the latest messy outcome of government talks and where that leaves the financial services industry. Secondly, a look at Emmanuel Macron as he looks to take advantage of this mess. And finally, a look at Danske Bank and the money laundering scandal that it finds itself at the middle of. First, though, to Brexit and Caroline, you and I have been writing quite a lot about the efforts in the city to persuade the government to come up with a coherent policy on Brexit it looked like it was getting somewhere then they started to fragment and then of course the checkers cabinet meeting took place when everything from a government end started to fall apart where does this leave the financial services industry in terms of brexit policy
2: amid confusion and doubt i think would be the short answer the white paper is due out later this week we hope and I think all eyes are on the white paper now to see whether the government can flesh out some of the detail on services that it failed to include in the statement that came out of the away day at Chequers over the weekend. Yeah, because
1: that was basically just a three-page summary which included barely three lines on services.
2: Yeah, I think if I, I totted up eight lines if we're being generous in terms of services in general, which let's not forget is eighty percent of the UK's economy. So in this statement it says that it's important to have regulatory flexibility for services. And then for financial services particularly, it says that arrangements should preserve the mutual benefits of integrated markets and protect financial stability, noting that these could not replicate the EU's passporting regimes. So we know very well what it's not going to be. We're not going to have passporting. We're not going to be part of the single market. The question is, what replaces that? And that's been up in the air, obviously, for the last two years. And so far, the government has singularly failed to answer.
1: And interestingly, there's no language around this kind of mutual recognition buzz phrase that we've written about before, which had been until recently the stated policy of government and certainly the Bank of England is very keen on it. And obviously, the City UK, the big city lobby group, had been advocating that as well. Although it had been a bit of a splinter movement from some banks away from that, preferring the idea of equivalence, or enhanced equivalence, basically keeping UK rules in line with the rest of the EU rather than this mutual recognition which was deemed to allow divergence but a kind of mutual acceptance of each other's rules. It's interesting, it's far more fudged than that in the statement, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it talks, as I say, about mutual benefits of integrated markets. But obviously, that could mean a multitude of things, as really could mutual recognition and indeed enhanced equivalence if yes, they're we're a nonsense, basically. <laughs> exactly, that they all leave a lot of room for manoeuvre, a lot of room for fudge, and don't really precisely address what mechanism it is that the UK is going to seek to try and retain some kind of access to the bloc.
1: Is there any hope that the White Paper, which, as you say, is due out within the next few days, will clarify that? Or are we just going to get more fudge, do you think?
2: I think probably more fudge in the near term because that's been the UK strategy over the last two years. And I think obviously it's got to yet be negotiated with Brussels. I think it's interesting that whilst Michel Barnier, the EU's chief Brexit negotiator in the past, hasn't been shy about coming forward to totally dismiss out of hand earlier pronouncements about mutual recognition. He hasn't quite been so forthright in the following days after the Chequers announcement. So there is possibly some room for negotiation and manoeuvre there.
1: And a final thought, do the dramatic resignations of the Brexit Secretary David Davis and the Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson in any way further complicate things for the financial services negotiation?
2: Well, I think in the sense that Obviously, Theresa May's first priority at the moment is stabilising her cabinet. And I think the statement also showed that her first priority really are the very political red lines that Brexit has thrown up. So goods, farming, fishing, whilst perhaps less of a contribution to the UK economy as a whole, very much are the lightning rod issues for the Brexit debate.
1: Well, we shall continue to monitor this. We're joined now by Stephen Jones, who's the chief executive of UK Finance, the industry lobby group. Stephen, thanks ever so much for joining us. Certainly from the outside, it looks as if both from the city's point of view and from the government point of view, the whole Brexit process, finding a negotiating position, a stance that represents the best of the industry, that's all kind of fracturing rather horribly. With time running out until the Article 50 deadline, it's pretty nerve-wracking, isn't it?
3: Well, I agree with you that it's in everybody's interest that we ensure that there is a deal and that we don't end up with a no-deal Brexit by March 2019, and the clock is very definitely ticking. But I think there are some green shoots that one can observe out of the chaos of the last few days, not least that the prime minister is seeking to assert a single view and is no longer appearing to tolerate dissent within her cabinet. And provided that she can keep her party together with that approach, I think one of the most frustrating things of the process will have been conquered, namely that the UK is able to actually have a position and go to Brussels with something to negotiate. That is obviously critical and obviously has impeded progress in Brussels regarding the finalisation of phase one around Northern Ireland, the border in particular, which would enable us to get on to phase two, would actually trigger legally the transition arrangement and from a services industry and financial services in particular, enable us to get to the meat of the negotiation, namely the arrangements between the UK and continental Europe. What they will look like, and therefore the business models that they will permit my members to be able to operate under. Talk um, there
1: about finding a, a single line for the financial services position on this. But as we were remarking a moment ago, certainly the language in the three page summary that came out of last week's checkers meeting, and who knows what the final language will be in the white paper, but it, it feels very fudgy. There's very little detail, well, no detail so far. Not even the buzz phrases that had been used around mutual recognition and so on are in there. It's all very, very vague indeed. Isn't that discouraging from the industry's point of view?
3: I think the three-pager was really designed to deal with the Northern Ireland border predominantly and therefore was more focused on goods, agriculture and common standards in that area to enable the border question for Northern Ireland to be addressed. In respect of services, I think we need to wait for the detail in the white paper. I think there were a number of different indications as to when that might come, but Thursday, I think, is the earliest that we expect that. You're right, the language on services is a little vague. Provide regulatory flexibility where it matters most for the UK's services-based economy. Recognising that the UK and the EU will not have current levels of access to each other's markets. Arrangements on financial services that preserve the mutual benefits of integrated markets and protect financial stability noting that these could not replicate the EU's passporting regimes. I don't think there's anything there to be concerned about, and you're right, the term mutual recognition is not used, but I believe the substance of the government's position is consistent with what was previously called mutual recognition. I think the terms mutual recognition and equivalence on either side of the channel have become such hot potatoes that actually going away from the language and actually detailing the substance about what we mean by mutual recognition In the Chequers document, it talks about preserving the mutual benefits of integrated markets. I think that's quite a helpful approach because mutual recognition for the Europeans is very difficult. I understand it was the terminology used 25 years ago by member states who were seeking to avoid harmonisation of regulation. And therefore, that language, I think, is not helpful for our common understanding in terms of what it is that we're trying to achieve.
1: That's a fair point. But we do at some point need a policy document that goes into those substantive points, regardless of what we call it in terms of headline titles for these things. We need something that outlines what we want and what, you know, what the government is going to seek to negotiate. Are you confident that the White Paper is going to deliver that? We
3: agree. We agree. And I'm hopeful that the white paper will be substantive. I think that the public speeches by the Chancellor in particular have been helpful, are underpinned by concepts that we've been presenting and arguing for for some time. And yes, I have to remain optimistic that the white paper chapter on financial services you know, will be well thought through and will reflect the views that we've been arguing, namely that particularly for wholesale businesses there should be a system whereby rules are closely aligned. There is an ex ante process to assess rule changes to determine whether that would result in a lack of alignment so far as one side or the other is concerned that might result in a de-designation, if you like, of effective regulatory harmonisation and an off-ramp mechanism which takes a little bit of time so that business models actually have an opportunity to adjust if one side or the other chooses deliberately to go their own way on a particular aspect of regulation in order that you know policymakers understand the consequences to individual business models of doing that i mean all of that i think is achievable and i think with pragmatic sensible commercial negotiation ought to be capable of being delivered without presenting too great an ask of us on the europeans
1: well let's hope you're right that in the first instance the details of what the uk wants are outlined in that white paper thank you very much Stephen, for joining us It's a nice segue, actually, into our second item and something Martin is here to talk about, which is how this all plays into the hands of Emmanuel Macron, France's go-ahead president, and the way in which he's already managing to lure financial services businesses to Paris as a result of the Brexit chaos here in London.
0: Yeah, so... Patrick, I've just actually been looking while you were speaking for the French translation of beggar thy neighbor, which (laughs) I don't think there is a literal translation, but it's something like mondier votre voisin. Um, Essentially, this is the stated position of Emmanuel Macron, the French president, who has rolled out the red carpet for financial services groups looking to deal with the uncertainty of Brexit and offered them tax breaks and to cut red tape and talked up the prospects for the French economy and tried to lure as many of them as possible to bring investment and jobs into France and build Paris up as an alternative financial centre to the city of London. And that strategy seems to be bearing fruit. And we had a story this week in the FT about BlackRock and Citigroup, two of the biggest Wall Street financial institutions, which both credited Macron to a certain extent with persuading them to build up their Paris operations. BlackRock has made an application for a license as an alternative investment group in Paris, something that they had thought about applying for in London, but they've decided to do it in Paris, and they're going to build up their alternative investment activities these are global activities from their Paris office. So that's going to entail a bulking up of their existing Paris operations and taking the centre of gravity in Europe, at least, away from London, where they have a very large operation. And Citigroup is essentially doing the same. They have recently announced a couple of big name hires of m and bankers from rival
1: UBS. And Martin, this isn't obviously the only institutions that have been making these decisions. We talked a couple of weeks ago about Bank of America, which has been setting up a new trading floor in Paris. A lot of institutions, although they've decided maybe to set up their subsidiaries, which they need to put in place post-Brexit in Dublin in the case of Bank of America or in Frankfurt in the case of most other big banks, a lot of the actual operating jobs are being transferred to Paris.
0: Well, I think that's certainly the case that in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote, most of the Wall Street banks opted for Frankfurt or Dublin to create their alternative EU hubs and their main subsidiaries, as you said. But recently, some of them have been unveiling plans to bulk up in Paris. And Goldman Sachs has talked about the positive energy in Paris. That was a tweet from Lloyd Blankfein, the chief executive of Goldman And just last month, they announced that France would be a priority in their plans to double their workforce in continental Europe. As you said, Bank of America is bulking up its trading floor in Paris. And JP Morgan said last week that it expected to migrate or add a few hundred roles to the EU ahead of Brexit. Many of these are going to be in Paris as well. So Paris is definitely gaining momentum after Frankfurt and Dublin took an early lead. Very good. Thank you, Martin.
1: Let's move on to our third topic and a look at Danske Bank. Now, Scandinavian banks have for years been the darlings of the stock market, really, and performed very well and very cleanly, seemingly. But Danske is mired now in something of a money laundering scandal. Well, Richard Milne, our correspondent, is based in Oslo and has been monitoring this. Richard, this is a bit of a bolt from the blue for this up to now pretty clean living bank, isn't it?
4: In some ways, it is. This scandal, though, has been building for about a year. Danska's name has been found in a number of these laundromat cases that have come out. Um, The first one was the Azerbaijan laundromat. It's also been caught up in the Magnitsky case, which was the Russian lawyer who uncovered this uh, alleged tax fraud, was then beaten to death in jail. And Bill Browder's Big uh, critic at the Kremlin has been involved in uncovering where all the money has gone, and it's just now got to a really big size that investors have had to sit up and take notice of it.
1: And what exactly are Danske accused of? Is it in the same kind of realm of the types of things that other big banks around the world, for BNP Paribas and HSBC, have been involved with over the years?
4: Well, they all have their special elements, but it is fairly basic money laundering that they're accused of. What it is, is that Danske bought a Finnish bank that had big Baltic operations, and in its Estonian branch, it's alleged now to have had about $8 billion worth of suspicious transactions. And these are transactions where experts see a sort of underlying pattern, either involving shell companies or payment purposes that are very obscure, that all add up to signs that Danske should have picked up on. And Danske itself says that it you know, didn't respond quickly enough, and it concedes that there was the possibility that customers were able to make criminal use of it.
1: So it's putting its hands up. And I guess the regulatory authorities and the criminal investigation authorities are on their back.
4: They are. Yes, the Danish regulators have reprimanded and criticised it already. But at the same time, their report in the spring, they didn't find them. Uh, they didn't recommend criminal cases against any management. And I think really what you're seeing is a bit of the European problem in dealing with this in that, The regulatory response is shared. So in this case, the Danish regulators only supervise the governance management of the bank. It's the Estonian authorities that look at money laundering. And I think they've done a reasonable job, but it's just a very piecemeal approach. And I think it's interesting those cases you named, Danske, these rarely come about because of the local regulators themselves, they've come about in BNP HSBC's case often through US authorities. Here, it's been investigative journalists that have uncovered a lot of this. And I think Europe has a lot of thinking to do about its money laundering approach.
1: Well, there's certainly plenty of it going around, that's for sure. Richard, thanks ever so much for joining us. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Caroline here in the studio, Richard Milne, who joined us from Oslo, and also our guest, Stephen Jones from UK Finance. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.